Section 1 of The Broken Shaft Tales in Mid-Ocean This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by TJP1421 The Broken Shaft Tales in Mid-Ocean Edited by Henry Norman On Board the Bavaria The good ship Bavaria lay at anchor in Queenstown Harbor, waiting for the mails, and only the little cloud of white steam curling from her escape pipe gave sign of the huge forces hidden beneath her placid exterior. Her decks were almost deserted, for her passengers had yielded as usual to that ridiculous fascination of a few more hours on land, which forms apparently the staple industry of the city of Queenstown, and is probably responsible for more seasickness than all other causes put together. But the eminent tragedian was far too wary to leave the ship at the one moment of the whole fortnight when her decks were reasonably still, and as he leaned over the rail of the upper deck and watched the little waves lapping musically round the black sides of the great liner, he was almost the only figure visible. He took off his eyeglasses, wiped them, and replaced them with admirable accuracy. He removed his peak cap for a moment and ran his long, graceful fingers through his hair. He drew a dainty cigarette case from his pocket, lighted a cigarette, and, thrusting his hands deep into the pockets of his thick pea-jacket, he wedged himself comfortably between the lifeboat and the rail, and gave himself up to general reflections, which doubtless proved as pleasing to him as they must be to any man who neither remembers nor contemplates anything but success. So comfortable did he find himself in his new corner, and so entertaining or profitable did his meditations prove, that he was not a little displeased to notice some footsteps passing beneath him on the lower deck, and turning toward the companion ladder. A moment later, a pleasant baritone voice broke out carelessly with lover's old song, suggested naturally by the last glimpse of Aaron. What will you do, love, when I am going? with white sails flowing the seas beyond. And the eminent tragedian had hardly time to discover whether he was more pleased by the voice or amused by the words, before the head of the singer appeared above the deck. It was that of a young man of perhaps thirty, with rather long, fair hair and a slight drooping moustache. He mounted the ladder with quick steps, still happily singing, and had just got to the second verse. What would you do, love? when home returning, with high hopes burning, for wealth for you, when his eyes fell on the eminent tragedian, wedged in the corner. He stopped short, and seemed for a moment on the point of sliding down the ladder out of sight, for they had met often before, but always as critic and criticized, with the deceitful glare of the footlights between them. His embarrassment, however, passed away as quickly as it had come, and stepping upon the deck with the ease of a well-traveled man, he lifted his hat to the eminent tragedian, whom, although he had never met before, he felt instantly that it would be both absurd and unmannerly for him to pretend not to know, and express formally but deferentially his pleasure at this unlooked-for meeting. The eminent tragedian, who had felt a greater embarrassment, though he had showed none, was still more courteous, as became his more distinguished position in reciprocating these expressions, and added, with more than enough politeness to cover the sarcasm, I venture to anticipate, sir, 
much profit from this meeting. There was an awkward pause, and both men looked up at the rigging. The younger man lowered his eyes after a moment to find the other one's gaze fixed upon him with an amused expression, and the first signs of a smile hovering about his lips. Their eyes met, and as if by some pre-established harmony of humor, they burst simultaneously into a hearty laugh. "'My dear fellow,' exclaimed the tragedian, extending his hand cordially, "'I am really delighted to make your acquaintance. I dare say I shall learn something from meeting you. And who knows, but you may unlearn something from knowing me. Won't you finish that song?' Under the circumstances, hardly any request could have been refused, but the conversation was interrupted by a shriek from the whistle of the tugboat, bringing the returning passengers and the mails from Queenstown, which had drawn almost alongside unnoticed. The two men leaned upon the rail side by side, and scrutinized their approaching fellow travellers for some minutes of silence. "'We shall be a small party,' remarked the eminent tragedian at length. "'I have two old friends among them but the rest are strangers to me. Who, for instance, is that big athletic-looking fellow, with the deep-set eyes and short brown beard? Frenchman, evidently. No more Frenchman, replied the critic, than American or an Italian, or for the matter of that, a Hindu. He's the novelist, you know, who began the story of Allahabad, and went from there to Rome, and then to Boston, and now I believe he's just done with Persia. An extraordinary fellow, so I've been told, began by trudging on foot through the dangerous districts of Italy disguised as a peasant, with a knife in his boot, picking up the dialects as he passed along. Then he edited a newspaper in India, and learned Hindustani and magic. A man with half a dozen mother tongues who just about to settle down in life as a professor of classical philology when he discovered that fiction was his strong point. I don't know of myself, but... We have a common friend on board, that dark fellow in the long yellow ulster, on the paddle box rolling a cigarette. And he has told me all about him. They were both special correspondents bound for the same part of the world, and they met at Niagara. They went together to see the falls by moonlight, and climbed out on a big boulder overhanging the edge of the horseshoe fall. Fascinated by the moonlight and the marvelous lunar bow, they sat there for an hour or two in the roar of the cataract till at last my friend dropped off to sleep and was quietly slipping over the edge of the rock when the novelist yonder happened to look round just in time to catch him by the collar. Dear me, said the tragedian, how interesting. We must make him tell us some of his stories. Ah, there's my old friend, the editor, that tall, fair man with the pointed beard. You know him? By name well, replied the other. Not otherwise. Then I envy you the pleasure in store. A fine fellow. Yes, fine is exactly the word that describes him. A man with a mind and bright as supple as his own rapier. And the tragedian made a gesture with a quick turn of the wrist that recalled Hamlet's palpable hit. Now there's an interesting figure. That tall, bent man with the long dark hair and pale face coming out of the cabin. Wrapped up as if he were in the Arctic Circle. I wonder who he is. I know him, replied the critic instantly. He is a living mystery of literature, an invalid himself. He produces book after book, filled with the very spirit of health, books which give you the physical tonic of a gallop across the fields in the morning, and thrill you like a plunge in the deep sea. The first prose writer of our time. 
They don't quite mean that, of course, but certainly the first romancer. Nobody else can throw such a halo of interesting personality round a poor little she-donkey. Or make a child's toy boat with its penny cannon in the bow so significant and pathetic an emblem of the most touching aspect of human life. Or take the absurdly impossible and transmute it by his imagination into something so real that, as soon as any of us has read it, it passes into an episode of his own life. And so they chatted pleasantly, the eminent tragedian and his critic, discussing their fellow passengers while the great brown sacks of letters were carried on board one by one on the backs of hurrying sailors. Some of the travelers were friends and some were strangers, some were famous and some were unknown. Last of all came an elastic figure over the swinging gangway and along the deck with a buoyant step and a breezy laugh. The wind snatched the yellow locks from under her navy blue cap and the trim pilot jacket with brass buttons gave a bewildering nautical air to the form which is associated in everyone's mind with Portia and Ophelia and, sweetest of all, with Beatrice. Nothing she wore comes within the limits of intelligible description. Her drapery was a law unto itself. So fearfully and wonderfully was it made. But woe to the woman, who should imagine that she could wear similar raiment with the same irresistible grace. Nor did this wonderful figure advance like an ordinary mortal. Whether it was a walk, or a slide, or an undulation, or a kind of swimming, nobody could determine. Certainly not the taciturn old captain, who gazed and gazed and at last fervently murmured, Bless my soul, as he turned to give the order which swung the head of the Bavaria round toward the Red West, and sent her ploughing through the great waters to the New World. Four days later it was again evening, and the deep glow of an ocean sunset was pouring in obliquely through the open portholes of the saloon of the Bavaria. It was reflected backward and forward in broad beams from the great mirrors, and it sparkled in points of gold on the glass and silver hanging over the heads of the passengers as they sat at dinner. At the head of the table, on the port side of the vessel, sat the captain. At his right hand, Beatrice, and at his left, the eminent tragedian. Near them were the editor, the novelist, the romancer, the critic, and half a dozen other congenial spirits whom Providence, in the shape of the purser, had brought together for company. They knew one another well by this time, and all the old sea jokes went round, and many a new and merry story and good thrust. But as all roads lead to Rome, so all conversations on shipboard have one conclusion. Whatever beginning a conversation may have, personal, meteorological, anecdotal, gastronomic, it always ends in an interchange of ideas on the probable date of arrival in port. And this momentous subject was regularly reached by the party on the Bavaria each day with a dessert. For myself, the novelist was saying, I should welcome delay. These are full days for me, and he made a note on his cuff. Tis time elaborately thrown away, said the critic. I have often noticed, remarked the romancer, that the farther one is from land, the nearer one is to one's fellows. Far be the land from us. Procul profanee. Don't, exclaimed Beatrice. It sounds like a spell. I'm horribly superstitious, and when Fido barks in his sleep, I always know something unpleasant is going to happen. You faut avoir ces pet, quoted the editor. I have a great comfort from this fellow, 
said the eminent tragedian, lifting his glass politely to the captain, with the calm assurance that there was no danger of the weather-beaten seaman being able to finish the quotation. Methinks he has no drowning mark upon him. Oh, don't, don't. I'll leave the table, cried Beatrice. Four days from now, interposed the captain with authority, we shall be off the hook. The next morning you will be seeing one of the prettiest sights of your life, an early morning sail up New York Harbor. I know nothing like it, except the grimy wharf at Liverpool, when the wife and bairns are watching for me. Four days from tomorrow morning, that is. He added, for like all sailors, he could not resist his gruesome joke. Unless Davy Jones himself. Nobody ever knew exactly how it happened. The captain was halfway up the companionway, and the tragedian was picking up a champagne bottle out of Beatrice's lap before they realized that anything had occurred. Afterward, they understood it all. How the captain's words had been cut short by a tremendous jar which upset everything on the table and sent the plates and wine glasses spinning about in all directions and brought down the cruets with a crash from the hooks overhead. How the captain had dropped his knife and fork and was almost on deck before they knew he had gone, and how there had come a great deafening blow, shaking the whole ship from stem to stern, then a moment's utter silence, worse even than the noise, and then another sickening blow, as if some giant of the deep had picked up the vessel and flung her down at his feet. Then all was still, except the lap, lap, lap of the waves as they flew by. Most of the passengers rushed helter-skelter to the doors, but the party at the captain's table did not wholly lose their wits. The editor, the romancer, and the critic sprang to their feet and looked at one another without a word. The tragedian turned instantly to support Beatrice, who, with a little subdued shriek, was about to faint when her eyes fell upon the novelist opposite. He was seated impassively, with the long neck of a bottle of sherry sticking out of one of his capacious pockets, busily engaged in filling the other with whatever eatables he could lay his hands upon. So she only burst into a peal of that merry, childlike laughter which so many love to hear. And, after a minute, they all joined the crowd hurrying up the stairs. They reached the deck at the same moment as the captain, who was returning quietly from the bridge. Ladies and gentlemen, he said, don't be alarmed. There's not the slightest danger. We have only broken our shaft. So the captain's prophecy did not come true. Four days from the eventful evening when the breaking of the shaft interrupted the company at dinner, Sandy Hook was as far off as ever, and the Bavaria was lying too with just enough sail spread to keep her head to the wind. What there was of it, which had blown persistently from the wrong quarter. For four days she had been drifting about, a great iron coal-freighted hulk, now a few miles one way, now the other. But except the delay, her passengers had suffered no inconvenience. The novelty of being helplessly becalmed, however, had worn off after a few hours, and a dull, leaden ennui had settled down upon them. Without wind, and plenty of it, there is no good spirits on board ship. Without movement in the vessel, there is none in the veins of the passengers. As the evening was closing on the fourth day, the same group was gathered together on the lee side of the deckhouses, silent, ill-tempered, bored to death. In the center, Beatrice was reclining in a steamer chair, enveloped in rugs from neck to feet, and her face hidden by a thick veil. 
On one side of her stood the eminent tragedian, on the other the editor, and round them were stretched upon the deck in a variety of unconventionally comfortable attitudes the romancer, the critic, and the novelist. The last named was deeply engrossed in the congenial task of translating Der Konig in Thio into classical Greek. He had rendered most of it to his satisfaction, and was beginning the last verse when he was suddenly interrupted by the voice of the tragedian addressing him. How absurd not to have thought of it before! My dear sir, when I saw you coming aboard and heard of your wonderful experiences, I promised myself that on the very first opportunity I would summon you, in the name of our party, to put some of them in narrative form for us. That opportunity is here. Night, moonlight, this mysterious and inspiring expanse of silvery water. All nature is propitious, and your listeners are eager. Your memory and your portfolio must be full of thrilling stories. Come, an honest tale speeds best. Before the novelist had time to say a word, the tragedian's request was backed by the others with such instant unanimity that when the chorus of entreaty had ceased, excuse was no longer possible. He hesitated for a few moments only, then drawing himself up till his back rested comfortably against the deckhouse and arranging himself carefully in his rug, he lighted a cigarette and he told the following tale. End of section one. Recording by TJP 1421.